guys, good morning. Uh, good morning, and uh, just to reiterate what Stacy was saying, a happy Father's Day to you, ladies. Happy Father's Day, especially. I mean, I just hope it's the best for you. Um, last Sunday, we had over 100 questions come in, and we got through about half of them. And maybe you're sitting here today, and your question didn't get answered last week. Good news, we're hitting it today. Or maybe you weren't here last week, and you're wondering what I'm talking about. For these three weeks, last week, this week, and next, we are doing something called questions you never thought you could ask in church. And what that means is this. We want you to take a look at this phone number. And you pull out your phone, and you can text in right now any question you have about God, Christianity, the Bible, the intersection of it with life, fellowship of faith. And I'm going to get them not only anonymously, but in real time. And I'm going to do the best job I can to answer them right here on the spot. Now, I'm going to bat clean up, and I'm also going to be taking new questions. So we're going to be ping-ponging today between questions from last week and ones that start streaming in. So as you start texting in, I want to start with the, the I got I to say this, it was the only question last Sunday that really threw me, that it came up and I'm just like... I don't know what to do with this. And let me, uh, let me share it with you again today. Here it is. If Jesus was a Marvel superhero, what would his name be? And I did my best to kind of fumble through it. And if you were here, you know, it kind of fell flat. And the same person ended texting in later on, if Jesus was a superhero, he would totally be the Black Panther. Now for the uninitiated... I want to show them to you side by side. <laughs> Behold the risen Lord. So I did some research this week, started thinking and consulted with the experts, people who not only have theological acumen but are versed in the Marvel universe, which means I went and talked to my brother Arthur. And together we came up with a short list for you. From descending to ascending order, if Jesus were to be a superhero in the Marvel Universe, ranking in at number five, we agreed on Logos, the X-Men Logos, because Jesus, after all, is called the Logos in John 1.1. Ranking in at number four, we're going to go down the road of Phoenix, this all-powerful X-Men who both dies and rises again, except he is a she and she is evil. Again, difficulties there. Arthur brought me into some new territory then. And apparently in Guardians of the Galaxy 2, did you see it? There is a hint, and you got to be on your game, to a character called Eternity. Also a contender. But the one that I got sold on more than all of the others, ranking in at number two, is Silver Surfer, the cosmic herald who came from another world with supernatural power to bring the message to the people of Earth. But ranking in at number one, and you've got to be geek boy to know this one, all right? Check out the Ghost Rider series from the early 70s and search out the character known simply, quote, as the friend who made it through approximately two to three issues but then was pulled by the editors because he just was way too reminiscent of him. Those are the best answers we can give you today at Fellowship of Faith.
for who Jesus would be in the Marvel Super Newt. All right, how about this? We got a collection of questions last week that were all hitting on the same basic theme. How do I discern God's voice? How do I know when it's God speaking to me or the devil speaking to me or myself speaking to me or the bean burrito that I mistakenly had for breakfast speaking to me? And this is obviously a complicated question that is not going to have justice done to it in a 20-second answer. So with that being said, I will simply say this. You don't. You don't know if the voice is God's or the devil's or your own or the bean burrito. Do not blindly listen to the voices in your head. And when I say it that way, you kind of go, oh yeah, right? But I think it's easy for Christians, especially, who, who have developed this very intimate personal relationship with God, to want to hear Him so bad that every time something feels good or feels right or sounds the way we want it to say, to put the God stamp on it. Test the voices in your head. Test them against that which is good and right. Test them against the scriptures. Test them among others to get the collective wisdom of God's Spirit moving in His body. And remember that the devil comes to steal and kill and destroy. And voices that sound like that, you should be very, very skeptical of. Remember that Jesus comes to bring life and to bring it to the full. And that that fullness of life is not found in enjoying whatever I want in the moment, but his path for what life looks like. So immerse yourself in that. What does a life with Jesus look like? And use those as filters along the way. Someone texted in, why did God create Satan? if he knew he would rebel and cause man to fall into sin. He did it for the exact same reason he created you. Would you be opposed to us making our own personal name tags to wear at FOF? It would help us to remember people's name and increase conversation. Would I be opposed to it. Now, when I hear the word opposed, that feels like an active effort to undermine and destroy. You want to wear a name tag to Fellowship of Faith, I encourage you to do so. This is a church where you can come exactly as you are. You want to wear a suit, wear a suit. You want to wear cutoffs and flip-flops, wear cutoffs and flip-flops. You want to wear a name tag, wear a name tag. But what I don't want to do as a church is impose the way that one person wants to dress on Sunday morning on everyone else. And may I just simply encourage you in this. If you want to know someone's name, ask them. It's okay. But, but we've talked to each other for two years. It would be embarrassing. Welcome to the Christian life. It's embarrassing. <laughs> it's good practice for life in the real world, all right? Just ask them their name. 
All right, let's take one more. How many heavens are there? Does the Bible mean atmospheres or actual heavens? What this person is referring to is Paul's reference in 2 Corinthians 11 and 12 of being brought up to the, quote, third heaven, to which most people come along and go, I thought there was just heaven. And there's some debate about what Paul actually means. Now, if you read the intertestamental works like Enoch and the second Enoch, you're going to find that there are levels of heaven that this traveler goes through. But I am way off the biblical map when I refer to that. Most people instead believe that what Paul is referring to by the three heavens is the area where the birds fly, the area, second heaven, where the stars live, and third heaven, where God lives. So that third heaven is just his way of referring to heaven as we know it. Make sense? All right. Let me take a couple of live textins that may have come in these last few moments. And let me refresh. Here's one. There it goes. Can we build a balcony? <laughs> you know, believe it or not, in the original specs, as I've come to understand it, we can. The original specs for this facility did, as I understand it, include a balcony back there. Now, I'm not an architect, and I don't want to speak out of turn, but as I've come to understand, the possibility for such a thing may, in fact, exist. However, another architect has been talking to us more recently about the idea of putting retractable doors in the back wall so that we could create an open area overflow that might be a little bit more cost feasible instead. But to your question? Maybe. <laughs> All right, this one is long, but important. And I, and I just ask you to bear with me as I read. Hey, Dave. My boyfriend's grandma fell this morning and is in critical condition in the hospital. It's really not looking good. I'm not able to come to church this morning because I want to be there for him. So I was wondering if during the service, you could ask the congregation to pray for his grandma. You don't have to pray in the service, but it would mean so much to me if we had an army of Christians praying for her. Her name is Terry. So two things. Someone is obviously watching us live this morning and texted this in. Would you carve 60 seconds out of your morning after we leave here today to pray for Terry? But I think we can do a both and instead of an either or. Can we just pray for Terry right now? God in heaven, we are so slim on details. Perhaps we don't even know what to pray for, but we don't have to because you're good and your mercy endures forever and you know the very hairs on Terry's head. You know her before life began. And we pray, God, in this moment, whatever strength, comfort, peace, hope, healing, sustenance that she and the family need at this point, that you show yourself mightily, that you show yourself in that room 
whether through a miracle of your hand or from a peace that passes all understanding that shows that even in the face of death, your life and hope breaks through. Be with Terry, sustain her, draw her near to your heart this morning, we pray. And for the family, God, who are beside themselves, let them know that they are in your grip and you do not let go. Amen. Here's one. What effect do you see on the church as a whole if we reach the goal of 500 members? What this question is referring to is a vision statement we have here at Fellowship of Faith that we want to be an Acts 2 church of 500 plus, but it's not of members. It's 500 in attendance, a church of 500 plus any given Sunday. And what do I see as being the effect on a church of a whole if we reach that? More people reached. More people who come to know Jesus. More people who live in our communities who are completely disconnected from a community seeking the ways of God, now connected. What I see it meaning internally is more spiritual gifts pouring into this place as those people come in. More perspectives, more vitality, more energy, more life, more struggles, more issues, more problems. But welcome to the call of God. In short, that's kind of what I see. Now, as a church, do you believe parents have the right to choose in regards to vaccinations? Due to some of the ingredients in vaccines, like aborted fetal tissue, I believe God says they are unclean. What are your thoughts? Now, I don't stand up here as a medical doctor today or a biologist, and to speak to the specifics of how a vaccine is created or what is entailed in that is a little beyond my realm to speak into in any kind of way with integrity. I would say this is apparent. Your call is to love and protect your children, but always under the umbrella of doing what's right. Sometimes parents will love and protect their children to the extent that they will let that supersede doing what's right. God always calls us to put him first. And so whatever the situation may be, doing what is right in God's eyes always has to be the operating principle. And you need to wrestle in your conscience with that and wrestle deeply and test that to see if it actually is right. But again, within that, doing what is right is loving and protecting your children. And vaccines have proven a way through history to eradicate disease and disability that have taken people ordinarily. If you choose to go the non-vaccinated route, I pray do your research and do it mightily and figure out all the implications of what it means and do what is right for them more than yourself. When will you be shaving off that beard? Thank you, brother. <laughs> you know, um, we were supposed to have staff pictures today for the new website, 
And um, they've been bumped to Wednesday, but regardless, I'm having this, this kind of personal crisis right now of going, do I want to be this way? But the reality is, um, I don't know. I'm kind of digging it, and if you were here last week, you know that my wife is totally digging it. And if my wife is digging it, I'm digging it. Ask Tina. <laughs> Let's go back to a few more from last week. We are all from Adam and Eve. Where do different nationalities and color come from? Nationalities first. Nationalities is just referring to what nation you come from, what political state. That is an arbitrary designation that humans create and recreate throughout the history of time. Nothing to do with where we come from originally or family tree. But color is an interesting thing, or maybe sometimes you might put it this way, where do different races come from? And again, as best as I've come to learn and understand not only the biology of it, but also the theology of it, there are not different races. There is one race, and it is called the human race. And we are actually all the same color, just in different shades. Melanin is what creates color in your skin. And in some, it's lighter and less or different on the spectrum. In some, it is greater and more. People of different races are not people of different species. We are one human race, and we all find our common descent in Adam and Eve, which means the person from the Far East and the person from Sub-Saharan Africa and the native indigenous person from South America and the Anglos that populate this church are all related at some point on the family tree. Here's another. Different denominations, right? They have different um, beliefs and rules. Since we can't know for sure whose rules are right, is there a core set of beliefs we should follow? Yes, and a point of challenge. I want to challenge you on the, 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 the statement you made that we can't know for sure. Now, we can't know everything for sure. And of course, stepping back from the, the metaphysical idea of absolute certainty, there are nonetheless many things that we can still know. There are places where Christian denominations might just be wrong, and it's okay to say it. So I want to encourage you that you can know, and the way you know is you take their doctrine of faith, their statement of faith, and you test it across the Bible and the historic ancient creeds, because that core set of beliefs that all Christians follow are these things called the Apostles, the Nicene, and the Athanasian Creed. And whether you're Baptist or Orthodox, Lutheran or Baptist, non-denom or Presbyterian, all find a common language and a common set of beliefs in them. So that song that Stacy led us through just 10 minutes ago, the Apostles' Creed put into music is an example of one of those. And I think what you find when you look at those creeds and you look at Christian denominations is that despite the differences we have in important ones at that, we are far more alike in our beliefs than we are different. And maybe that can just be an encouragement to you today as well. Let's take another. If baptism 
one of these issues that denominations do, in fact, differ over. Is a declaration of faith before God and the church, is it right to get baptized as a baby, or is it better to do it when you can make the decision for yourself? Now, here at Fellowship of Faith, we practice infant baptism. And here's the reason why. Because we believe that baptism, while being a declaration of faith, is also more than that. That it actually does something to you. That somehow and in some way, it is a mechanism or a vehicle by which God's Spirit actually works and comes to you, producing faith and bringing his presence and turning the heart and leading someone to repentance, which leads us to the logical conclusion, why would we withhold that from anyone, regardless of age? If that's actually what it does, of course I want to baptize my baby. However, there have been times here at Fellowship of Faith that I have strongly encouraged parents with infants not to. And let me share the reason why. Because from my vantage point, every reason and everything behind the baptism was devoid of actual faith. They were bringing their baby because grandma wanted them to. Not connected with the church, with no intention of being connected to the church, with no sense of personal faith in Jesus, but going to do the magic right because this is what cultural American Christians do. And my encouragement to them in that case was, no, wait. Wait, because you're giving yourself a false hope. You're doing something that will die on the vine. You're doing something that's meaningless, but instead do this. Come and worship with us. Come and spend time here with us. Come and meet Jesus for yourself. And if that happens, then let's talk about your baby. And maybe that advice can help you navigate it as well. Let me take another. When you confess your sins and am sorry, Jesus forgives. Why then do I have to be judged at the end times? Can I just answer that question with another question? Why do you assume judgment is a bad thing? How old are you? People are always surprised when I answer this way, I'm 58. And I gotta say, I think I look smashing for my age. All right. Would there have been dinosaurs on the ark with Noah? Would there have been dinosaurs on the ark with Noah? Yeah, maybe, maybe. God created dinosaurs, right? And if they weren't extinct by then, and they weren't extinct after then, then it stands to reason they would have been on the ark with them. But if they were extinct before then, probably not because that would be weird. All right? Since the book of Revelation is really a love letter to the church, 
Why do most of all pastors avoid teaching on it, keeping it kind of taboo and scary? I can't speak for most pastors, um, but I can tell you the struggle that we've had with teaching the book here. In most people's minds, it is taboo and scary. And so a lot of energy has to be spent breaking down that misconception before a new conception can be built up. Now, I've, I've made a vow to myself that as I do this question series, I am never going to come at it with what I call political or theological spin. But I'm going to stand up here and answer you honestly and vulnerably. And in that, guys, let me answer why we don't teach it more, despite the fact it is my favorite book in the Bible. And it's because of this. Sermons only have the capacity to take you knee deep. It's a monologue in which a mind drifts and comes in and out. It's a medium which is often passively received without people taking notes or trying to learn. For most people, a good sermon is three engaging stories and something they already know. It's just reality. Which means when you try to move into the deeper content of the Bible, things that require mental discipline, things that require a base of knowledge, it just simply isn't there among the widespread populace. And so for that reason, sermons often can't be places where we plunge into the deeper meat and complexities of God's revealed word. Socks, doesn't it? And if you're wrestling with that, maybe it's a good heart check to all of us of how to approach this time we call the sermon. Let's do a couple more. How about this? <laughs> Is it polite to say God bless you after an atheist sneezes? <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Let me take this one. What does the Bible say about how to fight depression? How do you tell the difference between God speaking to me and to myself having thoughts that only feed on depression? As much as I think we want God to be in constant conversation, more and more I come to believe that God speaks less in the mind and we speak more. I want to encourage you that a lot of what you hear up here is your self-voice talking to you, and that your self-voice is fallible. Be careful of what that's telling you up here, feeding that depression, because remember, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy not only your life and your salvation, but also your wholeness and peace and well-being. So how does the Bible say to fight depression? Understand that when the Bible speaks in this, it never uses depression in a clinical kind of way. But it speaks often about how we come up against things like sadness, 
grief, despair, or all the other symptoms that come to to create what depression for us means. And the universal thing that you see throughout the Bible, seek God in this, run to God in this. Be renewed by the transforming of your mind by God in this. Let him help you think differently about yourself and life and the future. To find safety and refuge, knowing that God is not always a quick fix to this, but that you can rest in his presence and that it is okay to be sad and that when you are weak, he is strong. What the Bible continually calls people to is this place of God's provision, God's strength, God's protection, God's care, and the infinite knowledge that he loves you and that there is no such word as hopeless or helpless in his vocabulary. And by adopting his way of thinking, transforming the way we feel as well. But the Bible says something else, and I want to speak to this because it often gets missed. The Bible speaks about the importance of others in our life. As a depressed person, it can become so easy to isolate yourself. The Bible rails against this. No. Surround yourself with people. People that you can be vulnerable with and honest with. People that will love you and nurture with. People that will give you counsel. People that can speak into it and help you feel more clearly and see more clearly, but love you exactly where you are. Seek that counsel and all of its arrays if you find yourself plunged into a place of darkness or depression today. Let me go back to a few more from last week. On the road, Jesus withered a tree. Fig? Yeah, it's a fig. Um, Why? I'm sorry, I don't know the passage. It's Mark chapter 11 plus its parallels. Why not restore it? He seemed angry. In fact, it's even more interesting. There was nothing wrong with the tree at all. It wasn't dead. It wasn't dying. The figs, according to Mark chapter 11, just weren't in season. It's like going up to your apple tree in April and going, there are no apples on this thing, and cursing it. Why did Jesus do it? Because from beginning to end, in the mode of a prophet, just like the prophets of the Old Testament, what you see Jesus immersed in is what are called symbolic acts, doing things that are meant to convey a deeper and greater message. And what's fascinating about the fig tree is the same cursing of the fig tree, a symbol for Israel, is couched in the the storyline of a number of other things Jesus is doing as well, like flipping tables at the temple, talking about the destruction that will come on Jerusalem, facing head-to-head the Pharisees and Sadducees and teachers of the law. It is one more piece of symbolic action of Jesus conveying the judgment that is coming on God's own people for rejecting God's Son. And this is also why the, 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 the common phrase, what would Jesus do, 
is not always the best template for what you should do as well? Good question. Help me get through all the media and propaganda. Are Muslims a peaceful, God-fearing religion, or do they have a master plan to destroy Christians and other religions and take over the world? Do I pray for them, fear them, explain? I am going to go backwards to forward, start at the end and work my way up. Do we fear them? There is an ancient Assyrian proverb that I absolutely love. Fear the goat from the front, the horse from the rear, and man from all sides. Muslim or not, I think there's some wisdom in those words. Do I pray for them? You better believe it. You pray for them. God loves Muslims, and they are made in his image, and they matter to him. But cutting through the media and the propaganda, are they a peaceful people, or do they have a master plan? Quite honestly, it depends what Muslims you're talking about. It's very easy to think of all Muslims as being unified in thought and belief, but that isn't true of any religion, of any denomination, of any local church or mosque. Some are very peaceful people. Some are not. Some Christians are very peaceful people. Some are not. had the opportunity to become friends with a former Hezbollah sniper who is now a Lutheran pastor in DuPage County. I've asked him about this question, about is there embedded in the Quran, because I'm no expert, and in the Muslim tenets, a master plan to destroy Christians and other religions and take over the world. And I think if I could speak for him, this is how he would answer. Yes, there is a master plan to take over the world, to see the entire world be Muslim. And if that includes destroying Christians along the way, there is a place for that or a sect for that within their tenets. But that shouldn't become a template for how you view all Muslims. Because in his words, a lot of Muslims, despite having that in their texts, would nonetheless reject it. Hopefully that helps you cut through. And if you would like to talk to him firsthand, text me again and I'll get you his name. As Lutherans, do we take communion as a remembrance um, and the bread and wine are symbolic of his body and blood, or are they his body and blood? How does this transformation happen? And today we are communing, so it's a pertinent question. What are we actually eating and drinking when we come up here? This is another one of those points where Christians differ. Catholics would tell you this is the body 
and the blood of Jesus. Most evangelicals would say, symbolic. It's a remembrance meal. It's bread and wine. In classic Lutheran theology and Lutheran position, they say this, yep, yep, yep. It's bread and wine. It starts as bread and wine, it remains bread and wine, it continues to be bread and wine. You put it under a microscope even after we do all the rites and all the magic and all the words of institution over it, it's still bread and wine. You're not going to see human cells on analysis. But like baptisms, the Lutherans always said, it's something more than that. It's something more than that, that somehow and in some way Jesus is actually here. There's kind of a lot of head scratching over it. How does the transformation happen? I don't know. Well, how does he get here? I don't know. I thought he's up in heaven at the right hand of God. How could he be in heaven at the right hand of God and also be here? I don't know. But the biblical language is so strong that the Lutheran position has been to say we don't want to underinterpret it but we wanted to let it stand for what it says and somehow, in some way, and here's the phrase they like to use, Jesus is in it, with it, under it. So that when you come to this meal, you're eating bread and you're drinking wine. So sorry, celiac people, the gluten thing is not off the hook. But somehow you're taking Jesus in too. And maybe that's where we land the plane today with the questions. We've been at it for 30 minutes and there's a lot more in the queue. We're going to back clean up on the rest of the questions come next week. But today, let's just pause and commune because our Lord Jesus Christ on the night when he was betrayed did take bread and he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, and he said, eat this, take and eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he took a cup after supper, a cup of wine, and he gave thanks, and he gave it to them. And he said, drink of this, all of you. This is my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of all of your sins. So come and do this in remembrance of me. Pause for just a moment to wrap your mind around the fact that Jesus not only gave his body and blood for you, but then invites you to partake of it, to be with him, to come to his table and in his presence. So I want to invite you to rise. And as the band comes forward, what I'd like us to do together is take that moment of pause to prepare ourselves, because these are words of the Scripture we want to take seriously too, to examine our hearts and examine them here today. And whatever offenses 
that come up in your soul against Jesus, whatever comes up, give it to him today, knowing that he died for that. Seek his forgiveness. Repent. And make a commitment this morning to start new here today in his way. God, we come. We come as sinful people who do not have a right nor deserve to sit at your table. But you invite us anyway. Forgive us, God. Forgive us for every offense and rebellion, for every rejection and defiance that marks who we are. Wash us clean through the blood you spilled. Come to these people, God. Come to us, I pray mightily, through this bread and this wine, your body and blood that we partake of today. Amen.